This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The Denver Public Library is one of the first in the country to have Narcan on hand. It's a medicine used to reverse an opioid overdose. As CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis reports, the decision to carry Narcan came after a death at Denver's Central Library. Michael was 25 years old when he was found dead in a library bathroom stall in early February. The autopsy report shows he died from the combined effects of heroin, meth, and two anti-anxiety medications. Every time he got a few bucks in his pocket, he would use that for his addiction. That's Michael's mother, Kelly. She asked we don't use her or her son's last name so she could talk freely about Michael's illegal drug use. Kelly heard about his death from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where she lives. They were close, but sometimes Michael was hard to keep track of. She says one of his favorite childhood books partly explains that. It was Oh, the Places You'll Go by Dr. Seuss. I used to read it to him all the time. And then all all the places that he went. He's been all over this country. Michael worked as a petitioner, going door to door to gather signatures for causes like animal welfare. That's what brought him to Denver. And when he turned up dead in the bathroom, the Denver Public Library decided they needed Narcan on hand. So we have, like, in our little pouches, we have gloves just in case, and then a little CPR mask and Narcan. That's Christy Schaefer. She's a social worker at the Denver Public Library. She says she's heard about fatal overdoses in the homeless community. And they tell us that a lot of them themselves are carrying Narcan to bring back their friends and just to take care of each other. Narcan is a little bottle of nasal spray that's used to reverse an opioid overdose. Each costs the library $75. So initially we ordered 12 kits, thinking hopefully we don't have to use this, but we have it if we if we need it. And we used four in six days. That's Alyssa Hardy, the other social worker on staff. I think there might have been a bad batch of something going through the city, uh, and because that's fairly unusual. So they ordered more. The library has used Narcan six times now. The plan is to eventually have Narcan at all of Denver Public Library's branches. City librarian Michelle Jeske says they have the city's support to use Narcan, and they're covered under Good Samaritan laws. Do you let somebody potentially die in your building when you could have just sprayed something up their nostril and, and potentially save them? To me, that's a pretty easy decision to make. Can she see the Sharps container real quick? Yeah, of course. Is that all right? <laughs> Inside the library bathroom, there's a Sharps container on the wall. This is where people can throw away their used needles. A security guard lets us in. He had just locked the door because of biohazard. But yeah, that's the Sharps container. That's the newer version. In there. Okay. Yeah. Um, and... Looks like there's blood on the ground. There's someone there, some of the stuff. Okay, I'm gonna keep walking. Yeah. Hardy doesn't know where the blood came from, but she does know most of the drug use happens in the bathrooms. She says Narcan is not as simple as spraying it up someone's nose. A heroin overdose stops a person's breathing and eventually the heart. We have had to administer breaths or CPR, full CPR on these individuals as well. And once the Narcan kicks in, they wake up. Like, nothing happened. They're usually asking, what are you doing? Um, What's going on? They're very disoriented, all of that, not knowing that they had just been in that situation. Staff at Denver Public Library branches will be trained to use Narcan, too. But most of the drug use happens at the central location. Hardy says she thinks it's connected to homeless people being forced to leave the parks. And the library is a safe place to go. People just don't have a safe place to use, let alone be. But if you are using, where do you go to use that's... That's private, and that's safe. Michael's mother didn't know about the library's decision to carry Narcan after his death. 
or the six people they've used it on, until I told her. He's done something to save lives. Okay. I can take a tiny, bitty, bitty bit of pride in that. Michael was a good man. He was a good man. Other libraries are now considering Denver's decision to carry Narcan, including the San Francisco Public Library. That's after finding a man dead from an overdose in one of that library's bathrooms. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. Michael was homeless when he died, and the Denver Public Library says it's serving as something of a homeless shelter these days, a role they weren't asked to play. We're going to have that story next week. Also next week, my regular conversation with the governor. It'll come on the final day of the legislative session as lawmakers scramble to get their biggest and toughest bills done. What questions do you have for Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper about what's happening under the Capitol Dome or outside of it? Email your questions for him, news at CPR.org. Again, the email address, news at CPR.org. Coming up, the CEO of one of the world's largest beer makers. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The CEO of the world's third largest beer brewer says this will be a year of transition for the company. Molson Coors, based both in Denver and Montreal, has completed a major acquisition now. President and CEO Mark Hunter joins us from his office in downtown Denver. Mark, welcome to the program. Hi, Ryan. It's great to be here. So your now much larger company traces its roots to some pretty well-known founders. John Molson of Canada's Molson Brewing, Frederick Miller of Miller Brewing, Adolf Coors of Coors Brewing, these beers now under your umbrella. Uh, your main competitor, Anheuser-Busch InBev, owns Budweiser and Bush and do- dozens of other labels. Uh, as much as there's a micro-brew craze, there appears to be a macro-brew trend as well. Why is there so much consolidation, do you think? Uh, well, cons- consolidation has been part of the, the global beer industry for the last two or three decades. And uh, you know, our interest is to put together a, a broad portfolio of brands that covers lots of occasions in the marketplace and meets the needs of as many drinkers as possible. And, you know, as you mentioned, we trace our roots back over a couple of centuries. And our origin is very much as a, a craft brewer and the, the craft of brewing is very much within our DNA. And, um, you know, we, we take a lot of care and attention as we uh, brew our brands and take our brands to market. Uh, so we've got a real privilege to offer a very wide selection of great brands, both within the U.S. and internationally. What's behind the consolidation, though? Tell me about the forces in the market that mean bigger is better, in your view. Uh, well, to be fair, across our business, uh, we've got you know small, medium, and large brands, and uh, you know we we try and meet the the tastes of consumers across many, many markets. But I think uh, beer is no different to many other industries where scale is important. Uh, we're shipping containers of what principally is is water, uh, which obviously is is the main constituent of beer. Large distances and, and having scale drives efficiencies and allows us to invest back in our business, back in our people, and back in our brands. And it's it's no no real different to many other industries around the world. 
in your first answer there, you really did focus on the idea of craft, craft beer. Um, I wonder if you do that strategically, in part because uh, traditional non-craft beers, sales of them have been flat or declining, and it's really the craft industry that is seeing growth. Um, Are you trying to be, in a way, both big and small at the same time? Uh, Well, we started small as a business. I mean, we were Colorado's original craft brewer uh, when the business was founded back in 1873. And I don't think we'll ever apologize for becoming more popular over the course of the last hundred or so years. And the the same in Canada when the business was founded by the Molsons back in 1786. So we've worked very hard to ensure that our our brands and our products deliver consistent quality and have become more popular. Um, To be fair, all beer is crafted. So the process, whether it's a small batch or a large batch of beer, is exactly the same and the ingredients are exactly the same. And, you know, we take a lot of pride in the focus that we have on brewing high-quality beers and whether those are, are big, big beers, which are available in many, many parts of the world, or they might be some of our local beers that are only available in, for example, in Ireland, we've got the leading craft uh, craft uh, brewery there called Franciscan Well. Uh, so we, we we cover the waterfront of tastes and styles uh, with our international portfolio. Molson Coors also makes Colorado Native and Blue Moon, and that might surprise some because they're not um, overtly labeled as coming from Molson Coors. Uh, that's drawn some ire from craft brewers who see that as stealth craft. Uh, how do you see that? Um, well, I think the, the the real issue is if... if People who are in beer start arguing with each other as opposed to celebrating the the diversity of beer styles that are available. And I come from a place where, you know, sharing a beer with friends is one of life's simple pleasures. And we are very focused on, you know, brewing a broad range of beers. And a, a brand like Blue Moon is a great example. It's a couple of decades old. It's grown very uh, significantly and strongly and consistently over those couple of decades. It started very small here, actually, in the... The Sandlot Brewery in Coors Field. Uh, someone tasted it one day and actually said, "You know, a beer like this only comes along once in a blue moon," and that's where the name came from. Uh, we launched it, and it has incredible appeal. And, and not only is it now available across North America, it's in probably over thirty markets around the world. So, I don't, again, I, I would never apologise for our beers becoming popular. And if they start small and become big and popular, then that's great. That's that's success as far as I'm concerned. You are striking a very harmonious note there, but as big breweries get bigger, it can be harder for smaller operations to find distributors, and there's concern that it gets harder to find shelf space. How do you respond to that? Uh, Well, I think the interesting thing is go go and walk in your local liquor store or your local supermarket uh, grocery store. Uh, The choice that's available for drinkers now either in this state or any state. In fact, in most countries around the world, it's probably at its highest level that I can ever remember. And interestingly, if you look at how we distribute beer in the US, we have this thing called the three-tier system. So we we must sell our beer to a distributor who then sells on to a retailer. Uh, We have over 500 distributors across uh, the US. They're all independent companies with the exception of one that we own here in Colorado. And the number of brands and uh, styles that... uh, these distributors actually stock and sell has grown exponentially over the course of the last 10 years. Uh, you know, one of our challenges is actually maintaining our presence. Uh, we have 
some of the highest selling and biggest brands and making sure that they're given the correct amount of shelf space is a challenge for us. But I, th- I think it's almost impossible to draw a conclusion that uh, the, the growth in craft in any way has been stunted by the distribution network or the shelf space. Uh, just walk down the aisles. Uh, there's more choice than you know what to do with. That's the picture in this country. Do you think that the playing field is as even abroad, though? Uh, yeah, I mean, if you go up to Canada, uh, Canada has as many craft brewers. When you look at the, the number as a proportion of the total beer industry as uh, the U.S. does, and we're seeing craft growing in in the U.K. We we own a brewery in the U.K. called Sharps, which is the number one craft brewery. I've got a great brand called Doombar, uh, which many of your listeners have probably never heard of. But if you go to the U.K., search it out. It's a great beer. Uh, we have a, a company called Franciscan Well in Ireland, and we're seeing craft emerge in Latin America. We're seeing it emerge in uh, Australia and, and parts of Asia. So uh, that growth's there, and great great brands uh, will find their way on, onto shelves. Uh, retailers are generally very interested in, in that part of the, the marketplace. I want to say that one of your main competitors, Anheuser-Busch InBev, just acquired another craft brewer, uh, I wonder if that drives your company to do the same, to be looking at craft brands to buy up. Uh, it's, it's a good question, and to be fair, it's something that we've been doing for the last decade or so. Not only have we built and created our own craft brands, and you mentioned a, a couple, Blue Moon and Colorado Native, yeah. uh, but we own a number of other craft breweries in the U.S. Uh, we, we've acquired craft breweries in uh, Canada over the course of the last 10 years, uh, Cremore Springs in Granville Island, uh, and Brasseur de Montréal in uh, Quebec. Uh, and we also have Sharps and Franciscan Well in uh, the U.K. and Ireland, so... We, for the last 10 years, have been building out our craft portfolio. It's an important part of our offer, and it's not new news for us. Uh, To be fair, our biggest competitor was kind of following in our slipstream, and uh, they've been running very fast to catch up over the course of the last two or three years. You are listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Mark Hunter. He's CEO of Molson Coors and joins us from his office in downtown Denver. Uh, Shares of the company took a hit Wednesday after you reported weaker U.S. sales in the first part of the year. And there are some concerns that you haven't benefited from cost savings since your acquisition of Miller & Miller Coors. Uh, You said this will be a year of transition. What does that mean to you? Uh, Well, we're putting together two great businesses, the, the Miller Coors business and the Molson Coors business. And Uh, Clearly, we want to be investing uh, in our business, uh, behind our people and our brands. So as some of our cost savings come through, some of those will be reinvested. Uh, We're obviously uh, working to connect the two businesses, both culturally and from an operational perspective. So that's a lot of work. And we've been very clear with our investors that as we come through 2017 and go into 2018 and 19, some of the synergies that we'll be able to unlock in our business will start to flow through. Uh, and that will allow us to further accelerate the development of our business. So it's really about managing expectations. You know, our businesses have been around for over a couple of centuries, so quarters come and go. And I think it's very important to, from a governance perspective, to keep very focused on the medium to long term. We're trying to build a business which is generational, which can be sustained over decades, if not centuries. And, you know, we'll make the right decisions quarter by quarter for our business, not necessarily just to please, you know, the analysts or, or the investors. They, they know that we're trying to build this business for the long term. Of course, the subtext of the word cost savings can mean layoffs. That is, 
uh, eliminating redundant positions, redundant employment. Do you foresee uh, that going forward? Uh, well, what we've said is that the opportunities in our, our business are really around three or four areas. One, because we've put our two businesses together, the number of our procurement uh, buying power in the marketplace uh, is bigger. So, you know, in our relationship with suppliers, we expect to get better pricing and better terms. Uh, we're looking at how we can connect up our breweries in the U.S. and Canada and uh, remove some of the transport costs, which are a big part of, you know, moving beer around the country. Uh, we're bringing together our information technology structures. Uh, and again, that gives us cost savings as we, you know, uh, reduce the number of uh, IT platforms that we have. So there's a whole range of ways that we can uh, continue to drive productivity and efficiency in our business. Sometimes that involves uh, uh, job reductions, but you know that's been much more uh, uh, an evolution within our business. That's just continuous Im- improvement, continuous focus on cost management as new, new technologies allow us to do things in new and more effective ways. So do you expect layoffs going forward? Uh, we haven't talked to any layoffs. There's been some roles have been consolidated as we've brought our businesses together. And, um, you know, if, if there w- was to be any layoffs, the first people that would hear about that would be the people in our business. But it's, it's not a big part of our, our synergy plan. Um, there's very little overlap between the two businesses as we brought them together. And it's much more about driving better ways of working, more effective purchasing, more efficient processes. Uh, as I say, very little overlap between the two organizations. You became CEO of Molson Coors in 2015. Mark Hunter, what was your relationship to beer before joining the company? Uh, Well, I've been in the beer business now for uh, 27 years. I I continue to complete my apprenticeship when it comes to knowing about beer. Uh, So I've worked in the beer industry in the UK, in Canada. Uh, I was uh, based in Prague as well in the Czech Republic looking after our European business. So I've been part of the Coors and Molson Coors business uh, for the last decade and a half. And prior to that, I was part of the Bass business in the UK. And actually, that was Coors' first big international acquisition. So back in 2002, uh, Leo Kiley and the Coors team acquired the majority of the Bass business in the UK. And I became you know, part of the Coors team at that point in time. Right, so I've been in the beer business since 1989. Uh what are the fastest growing beer markets in the world and what are the challenges of doing business there? Uh, currently, you're seeing areas like Latin America um, and Asia growing very rapidly. Um, and then within some of the developed markets, you've got segments that are growing fast. So craft has been growing rapidly in uh, the US, although it's th- that growth has slowed quite significantly in the last couple of years. Things like flavored alcoholic beverages have been growing rapidly. Some of the import brands as well in many markets have been uh, growing rapidly. So we have a big Czech brand called Staropramen, which is doing very, very well in many international markets. Uh, As we take our our beers to new markets, finding the right partners is really probably the biggest challenge. You know, beer is still a people business, people who know the markets locally, who can look after your brands and make sure they get to the right retailers and consumers. So picking the right partner really becomes the, the, the critical decision. Yeah, have you run into something culturally, I wonder, in a country where you have done business, where you made a mistake and had to learn from it, um, misread the population or the desires? Uh, I'd love an example of what that looks like on the ground. Um, it's, it's a great question. 
Uh, I mean, lead, leading a business is always a journey where you're learning most days. Uh, uh, the interesting thing with beer is the, the, you know, beer tends to be at the heart of sociability in most markets. So you turn up and, and talk about beer and, and people understands exa- understand exactly where it fits. I, I think the danger is in making assumptions on beer styles. So, for example, light beer is such a, a big part of the beer market in the U.S., but light beer doesn't really exist as a segment in other markets. So assuming that because it's a big segment in the U.S., that it will be a popular uh, and appropriate segment in other markets is uh, probably an area that we've run into a couple of times where we've, we've made an assumption, and that assumption's been proved incorrect. But that's part of learning. Well, Mark, thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. Great. Happy to talk about beer any time of the day. Okay. (laughs) Mark Hunter, CEO of Molson Coors, based in both Denver and Montreal. The company is now the third largest brewer in the world. When we come back, one of the world's best rock climbers, or quite possibly the best. That's Tommy Caldwell of Estes Park. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The last time the world heard much from Tommy Caldwell of Estes Park, he was suspended on the side of a sheer rock face. So we are about 1,200 feet up the face of El Cap, which is about 3,000 feet tall. We're sitting in a portal ledge, which is basically a hanging cot with an aluminum frame, and there's sort of a tent that goes around the whole thing. Caldwell talked to NPR in January 2015 when he and a climbing partner did what many thought was impossible, free climbing the Don Wall in Yosemite. As impressive as that was, Caldwell's new memoir is full of even more jaw-dropping stories. He writes about his kidnapping in Kyrgyzstan, conquering some of the hardest routes in Patagonia, and how he almost lost his relationship with his greatest influence, his father. This book is called The Push, And it comes out this month. Tommy Caldwell, welcome back to the program. Great to be here, Ryan. Thank you. People all over the world were asking how you could do that climb on the Dawn Wall. You had an athletic mentor in your father for sure. He was a bodybuilder. In fact, he was Mr. Colorado 1976. But an injury meant that he gave up bodybuilding and really threw himself into climbing. And reading the book, it strikes me that Gosh, the course of your life starts because your father tore a tendon. Um, what did he expect of you physically as a kid? You know, yeah, my dad was definitely a pretty out there character. Um, just growing up with a bodybuilder as a father is a bit of an altered reality in the first place. And, um, you know, he was, he was such this gregarious, like big muscle bound man that I wanted to be just like him. So really his parenting was just doing cool stuff and having his son look at that and be like, wow, that's pretty amazing. Um, so yeah, it was bodybuilding for a while and then it turned into rock climbing and I was honestly a pretty meek underground little kid. <laughs> and I think my dad knew that he needed to build confidence and strengthen me. And since, you know, that's kind of how he viewed the world, being strong was the way forward. He did that through bringing me into the mountains and kind of exposing me to these pretty harsh environments and these big adventures and um, taking me on all these um, experiences that most people around him looked at him thinking he was pretty crazy. Yeah. Uh, on your third birthday, in fact, your parents gave you a kite with a picture of Superman on it, and it came with strings attached. 
uh, literally and figuratively with a kite. Uh, the first flight for this kite had to be from the top of a rock in Estes Park, not too far from where you grew up in Loveland. And uh, how do you remember that, that expedition? You know, that was when I was three, so I don't have very distinct memories. So uh-huh. these really early childhood stories that I wrote about are more recreations from interviews with my parents and just seeing the way that they told the stories. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that my dad basically woke up every day and he's like, what is the most awesome thing we can do today? And so climbing to the top of Twin Owls with his three-year-old son and his five-year-old daughter was one of those things. And um, he's always been into bribery. He's a middle, he was a middle school teacher for like 22 years. <laughs> and his style of teaching was always to build excitement through kind of this reward system. So yeah, flying a kite with, off the top of Twin Owls, it just would kind of got me excited about what it would be like to see that kite, not only 100 feet off the ground, but like a thousand feet off the ground because we're flying off the top of a spire and yeah it was it was a pretty magical childhood in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. so you almost use the word bribery there for the the reward system that your father set up there are other examples of that yeah yeah i mean it kind of was it was like a reward system another thing he did for me when i was a child is that instead of getting allowance through chores like cleaning the house i actually would get allowance through doing physical fitness exercises like pull-ups and push-ups and laps around the block. And that's how I, you know, bought my first bike and my first pair of climbing shoes. Do you think that he would have been that way with any kid or was it because you were scrawny? I don't know. That's a hard question. I mean, it works so well with me that he has continued to do that throughout his life with other people. Uh-huh. He's really somebody who's all about experience. It's funny. Today, he's a, you know, his retirement job is a fly fishing and a climbing guide in Estes Park. And he does this thing. You know, the, There's a lot of wind in Estes. And when he brings his clients out there, he convinces them that sort of the worse the weather is, the more full value of an experience they're having. And I really do think his clients come back feeling like they kind of got their money's worth if the weather was really bad and they were out there experiencing something that they were going to remember. So um, that's kind of how I lived my life. Yeah. He has a really good ability to spin, I think, too. Um, You used to go camping alone in the mountains several miles from home in elementary school. And I just wonder, now that you have your own kids, if you try to do the same for them to build grit, which is, you know, such a popular idea these days. Yeah, yeah, grit is such a parenting buzzword. Um, You know, I think writing this book was largely prompted by the fact that I have kids now and I wanted to understand more about the good and the bad that my parents did raising me. Um, Getting me excited about the mountains was amazing in almost every way, but it also changed the way that I view risk, which has probably gotten me in trouble a few times in my life. Um, so yeah, I mean, for the most part, yeah, I'd take my kids outside, I'd take them climbing. I just got back from a two month trip to Europe with my one year old daughter and my four year old son and my wife, and we were climbing every day. Um, but we try and do it in a pretty controlled environment. So it sounds like you're making some changes based on what you perceive of your own parents and that that really does have to do with risk. Why do you think you took to rock climbing? I mean, what became addicting about it to you? 
I think there's a couple things. My dad was exposing me to this world that was just so much more exciting than really anybody else that I knew <laughs> climbing to the tops of these mountains. I would go back to school, going to Bolivia when I was like 14 years old. I went and climbed to the tops of the highest mountains in the Alps when I was also 14 years old. And I remember coming back to school and being quite bored, actually. I mean, I found that um, the lifestyle of a climber was really exciting and really adventurous and really engaging. So I took to that. Um, also, climbing tends to be a good sport for kids that are somewhat awkward in traditional school environments. Like I was never a good competitor. I wasn't socially that gregarious. Um, so in climbing, you can sort of just like go out and immerse yourself in the mountains. And, um, you know, that becomes your avenue for excitement instead of you know, socializing, which is the way that a lot of kids go. Uh, for people who may not remember, you and Kevin Jorgensen free climbed the Don Wall. So that means you used ropes only to catch yourselves. Uh, you had to use your body, just your body, to actually ascend. And watching footage of you guys up there still gives me chills. And in the book, you describe it really well. The tiny handholds just looks like you could drop right off that sheer rock. And um, I know at this point you don't get dizzy being up on walls like that, but that wasn't always the case. You write about the first time you went to Yosemite and got on El Capitan. You were 19, and um, you actually got nauseous, right? Yeah, I mean, the first time I went to climb El Capitan, I actually did it backwards. I hiked to the top, and I dropped off the top like I rappelled down on my ropes first, which meant that I was instantly exposed to 3,000 feet of exposure. And... um you know, it kind of takes having never, you know, if you put anybody in that situation, it's going to be pretty intimidating. It's one of the most <laughs> exposed, like exciting environments you could possibly be in. And it feels scary. And part of climbing, I mean, I think one of the things I love the most about climbing is it's this constant process of looking at things that seem improbable or possibly impossible and then breaking them down into their elements and therefore making it possible. So when I first went to Yosemite and looked at El Cap, I was like, that looks impossible. But the climber mindset makes you want to learn more about that. And then once you do break it down to its elements, start feeling the holds, think about it just foot by foot, you do realize that it's possible. One really trying moment in your career it was not on a wall. It was when you lost a finger, the index finger on your left hand from a run-in with a, a table saw at home. And uh, the surgeon told you you might not have a, a career going forward in climbing. How much of an identity crisis did you have after losing that finger? You know, this was at a time in my life where I was starting to glimpse the idea that I might be able to make a run at climbing full-time, which is what I knew and what I wanted. And then losing a finger was just sort of my worst fears coming true. I mean, all of a sudden it seemed like it could all fall apart. Um, but I think fear is a pretty potent motivator. And so <laughs> I was able to um, sort of turn that around. And a huge part of this was my wife at the time, um, Beth Rod. And I remember when the doctor told me that, she, as soon as he left the room, he she was kind of like, screw that guy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't know what you're, <laughs> what you're capable of. And I remember sort of latching hold of that and being, yeah, you're right. I should... 
you know, I can actually use this. And I think my capacity to do that was somewhat a product of my upbringing. I mean, that's what we did as, as a kid. We went, we got in, we got ourselves in thunderstorms. We slept in snow caves. We did these things that, you know, most people think of as great adversity, adversity. And we figured out ways to have those experience fuel us. And how long did it take after losing the finger to just get back to your normal self? Or or would you say that, you know, you'd be 5% better with the 10th finger? Uh, I mean, if you follow stories of amputees in sports, there's so many of them where it actually became the launch pad for something so much greater. Uh-huh. There's a specific type of climbing, like sport climbing or bouldering, that I'm never going to be as good as I was before with, that, with a missing finger. But what it did do is it made me changed the style a little bit. I started looking towards big adventure climbing. That's when I really got obsessed with El Capitan, when I started doing more expeditions around the world. And that really was the style of climbing that I took to. Um, That's what my strengths catered to. So it just pushed me in the right direction. It also made me way more serious. I think if I hadn't chopped off my finger, I probably would never have been able to um, sustain the life of a professional climber. It became the launch pad. Yeah, that's fascinating. So it wasn't so much an obstacle as a catalyst. Um, You had lost that finger after you'd survived a harrowing near-death experience climbing in Central Asia. Uh, I believe you were tagging along with your then-girlfriend, Beth Rodden, whom you've mentioned. Um, I love your description of Kyrgyzstan when you first got there, that it was like Yosemite without the cars and people, a rock climber's paradise. Uh, but it was not a paradise, your experience there. Give me the Cliff Notes version of what happened to you in Kyrgyzstan. Yeah, so we arrived in, we went to Kyrgyzstan in the first place because we knew it to be like Yosemite, this place that we were very used to, but in a remote location. And at first it did feel very idyllic, these these kind of beautiful, peaceful mountain villagers. Um, but it turns out that the high mountains of Kyrgyzstan in 2000, in the year 2000, became this, um, you know, it kind of broke out into war. It was a, it was a pretty complicated political situation, but essentially these high mountain passes um, became a way to um, move opium over borders, and we just ended up being at the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, militant group called the Islamic Boot Movement of Uzbekistan came over the border um, from Tajikistan into Kyrgyzstan, and the Kyrgyz military knew they were coming or found out they were coming and showed up, and we were sort of at the point of collision between these two forces. We got taken hostage for six days by the Islamic Movement of Uzbekistan, um, at which time there was pretty heavy fighting going on with the military, and so we had to abandon all food and warm clothing and really us as well as our captors were in pretty dire situation, um, starving to death and hypothermic, on the verge of hypothermia. We spent our days hiding in kind of damp holes and covering ourselves with brush and reeds or hiding under boulders. And then we'd move around at night, progressively um, sort of like just losing energy and power. Yeah. And you write vividly Um, about what it feels like to think that you're starving You know, it's interesting because you talked earlier about risk and risks you've taken that have gotten you into trouble. And, you know, there were travel advisories in Kyrgyzstan at that point that um, you either weren't aware of or 
went despite that? You didn't check in with the State Department when you were there. I wonder if that's an example of a risk you look back on and and regret. Yeah, I mean, we were young. We are, were idealistic. We looked at those travel advisories, which we did find, actually. And we started to look more into that. And at the time, for instance, there was a similar travel advisory for Australia because of the Olympics. And so... As a climber, if you pay attention to all the risks, you'd never go out in the mountains in the first place. At least least that's how we viewed it back then. And so we decided to go despite, and we we changed the location that we were going to climb. We we decided to go into a dead-end valley that was about, you know, eight miles from what we thought could be a thoroughfare. But the um, the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan found out that we were up there, and so they just walked that eight miles to find us to take us hostage. Tommy Caldwell, you also learned in this experience about yourself that you were willing to kill someone to get free from the captors there in Kyrgyzstan. You actually pushed one of your captors off a cliff, and it was only later that you found out he lived through it. What was that like, believing you'd taken someone's life and then learning you hadn't? I mean, that was a very complicated thing. I was probably the most unlikely person from an outsider's perspective to do something like that. I was still really shy. I was sort of the flunky on the trip. I was just the tag-along boyfriend. I was in no means the leader of the expedition. And the other two people, the other other three members of the expedition, or the other two male members of the expedition, decided pretty early on that our way to escape was going to be able to take Uh, was going to be to take matters into our own hands. But it just never happened for six days. And so I was really adamantly against that at first because we had seen them kill Kyrgyz soldiers. Um, I felt like their actions embodied this evil that I didn't think we should be part of. I felt that we should just try and withstand it. But as we progressively got weaker, I came to the conclusion that something had to be done. And making the decision to try and take somebody's life is not an easy thing. And so those other two guys who were very, very much wanting to do that just couldn't do it. And in the end, I waited till really the last possible moment and decided to push this guy off a cliff. And it was for me, once the decision was made, the action followed almost immediately. And so the whole experience psychologically was pretty crazy for me. Um, The long-term effect was probably that it was pretty about powering. Like I realized that once I make a decision, I can um, I can execute it, and that was a that was a pretty empowering thing. And the other thing that that expedition did is we suffered so much physically and emotionally that really any experience since then has seemed pretty minor. Like when I'm <sighs> out climbing and things get painful <laughs> or scary, I think back. I'm like, this is no big deal. This isn't even that bad compared to what we went through then. And that's a pretty um, useful tool in climbing, I guess. I'll say that you felt awful after pushing him off the cliff. And um, Beth, your then-girlfriend, whom you later married and uh, is now your former wife, actually thought of you as her hero as a result of that. But that when you learned he had not died, your captor, uh, your parents say you, you really did come back to life after after learning that. So um, indeed, after Kyrgyzstan, you and Beth Rodden got married, uh, later divorced. And we're going to talk about how that helped lead to the Don Wall push. But why don't we take a break first? We'll be back with Estes Park climber Tommy Caldwell after this. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. I don't think I'll get a lot of pushback if I say that Tommy Caldwell is the best climber in the world. He lives in Estes Park, and he's written a book. It's called The Push, A Climber's Journey of Endurance, Risk, and Going Beyond Limits. And Tommy, in your 20s, you you seem to have it all, a promising climbing career. You were part of the first couple of climbing with Beth Rodden. You two got married, um, but then you write in detail about how that relationship fell apart. Uh, why write about that in such detail? You know, I went into writing this book with the idea of kind of making it a bit of a classic adventure story. Mm-hmm. But when I really started to dive deep, I realized that I had to go deep. It became this pretty... Um, I'm in an intense but somewhat magical introspection. And a little bit of this was due to um, my main collaborator, Kelly Cordes, really urging me to go as deep as possible. And I think that that I ended it. So therefore, I ended up writing about these experiences that, that were the most formative in my life. And Kyrgyzstan was perhaps the most formative in a lot of ways. And so that's what I wrote first about. Well, you were kidding. But yeah. the relationship with Beth was eight years long and it was really magical and when it fell apart it absolutely rocked my world and so I couldn't not write about it in a lot of detail Um, you know it was just a huge part of my life so was it cathartic to put pen to paper yeah yeah it was I was surprised at how dark (laughs) a lot of this came out Um, you know I think people will feel enlightened by the book in the end but it goes deep it goes super deep And it was startling to me to learn how your struggling marriage threatened your relationship with your dad, who'd been your champion all these years. You wrote him a letter um, blaming him, at least in part, for the problems in your marriage. And uh, there's a really beautiful recounting of when you went back to your parents' house to apologize. Um, What was that like to walk into their house and, and to make up with this figure who looms so large in your life? I mean, the the relationship my, with my dad is hugely complicated and um, very beautiful in a lot of ways. He's um, he's perhaps one of the most loving um, people that I've ever met, and he's really, really emotional, and I basically live his dream life, so a lot of his life is focused on me and what I'm doing. Um, so... The relationship with my wife, you know, she didn't, with my ex-wife, she didn't always see eye to eye with my father. And so there was a point where I remember a dad, a friend of mine said that, you know, he had this experience between his wife and his dad where he had to make the decision whether he was going to, um, you know, be close with his wife or his father. And when my wife was leaving me, I, I thought that I had to make that decision. And so that's when I wrote this letter. Um, but after the relationship broke up, I had a lot of regrets. And, you know, there was probably a year-long period where I pretty much didn't talk to my dad. And when I went back and um, sort of started to patch things up, it was, yeah, it was really emotional. I mean, my dad's a pretty tough guy. We don't normally go deep in our conversations, and suddenly we had to. And it was a healing and pretty, um, I don't know, just just beautiful experience, which I wrote about. Yeah. Last time you were on this show, your dad... Mike Caldwell, was on with you. And we asked if you inspire him. Tommy inspires everybody. <laughs> he, you know, just he loves it so much and he does it with such grace. Having Tommy as a son inspires me in so many ways. I spend so much time in the gym and, you know, out in the backcountry just 
trying to stay in shape for those moments when we can be together. It sounds like he's trying to keep up with you, whereas as a kid, you were trying to keep up with him. Do you, do you still climb together? We do sometimes, um, not nearly as much as I wished we did. Um, you know, I still have made the decision to stay in Estes Park um, because my family lives there and because my parents are there. Um, so that's to be close to them. And now that I have kids, um, they spend a lot of time with both my mom and my dad. And so, yeah, it's still a close relationship. Still a close relationship. And one that yeah. is still based on athletics, would you say? Yeah. You know, as my dad gets a little older, maybe it's slightly less based on athletics. Uh-huh. I used to be able to, you know, do with him what he did with me, which is just come up with the crazy advent- craziest adventures we could think of and go out and experience them together. And maybe that's not quite as accessible as it used to be. Um, but... Yeah, it's still a hugely close relationship. Like, I spend a huge part of every day of my life um, thinking about that <laughs> and being appreciative for it. I mean, he's he really is the most encouraging father you could ever have, and he's so proud. Tommy Caldwell, this book, The Push, uh, really brought out the physicality of this sport for me. I don't climb, um, and I was struck by just how much training you do. 14-hour days running and climbing and doing pull-ups pull-ups with just your fingers. Um, I don't know. What's the most impressive physical feat you can do with your nine fingers that the rest of us, or certainly I couldn't do with my whole upper body? <laughs> yeah, you know, that's, that's pretty hard to quantify to non-climbers. I mean, really, when we go out and train all the time, it's a matter of trying to learn how to grab onto the smallest holds and lift your body weight off of those. So I can, you know, I can grab onto you know, tiny little holds like the size of the edge of your credit card or something and hang my body weight off of those. Um, So to somebody who's never climbing, that's a, that's a matter of not only training your muscles, but getting your skin conditioned and all these different things. So um, yeah, climbing, you have to train for climbing at a high level, the same way that Olympians train for their, you know, Olympic sports. And you did an incredible amount of training before free climbing the Don Wall. But, you know, even more impressive than the Don Wall, at least in the climbing community, I think, is a route you did in Patagonia, where you write that you pushed yourself too hard. Um, To someone who's not a climber, I suppose most of what you do looks dangerous. But what made Patagonia too much? Um, What did it tell you about risk? I mean, climbing on El Cap, I feel like it's physically really hard and it looks, you know, it looks impressive. It looks scary, but it's actually not all that dangerous because the wall is so steep and the ropes are strong. So if you fall, you simply fall into space and the rope catches you. Mm-hmm. Going into more alpine terrains, like in Patagonia, you're dealing with ice fall and rock fall and you're, you know, a long ways from rescue and you're dealing with all these you know, in, inclement weather issues, and it really is more, way more of a conversation with risk and trying to negotiate minefields. And that kind of climbing is really, really appealing to, to serious climbers um, because it's, I don't know, I guess maybe it's the most exciting in a lot of ways, and it's the most beautiful. Like, you tend to have these true life experiences in these big mountains, but the risks are hard to control. And I think, you know, a lot of people in our community die all the time. And especially lately, it's been happening more than normal. And I think as, you know, I went to Patagonia with my family and they were in town while I was up in the mountains climbing. And I think I had a moment up there on the mountain where I just thought to myself, like, what am I, why am I here? Why am I doing this? You know, pushing it this far does bring me to life, but is that even worth it? 
And I suppose that equation has changed a lot since becoming a father with your wife now, Becca Caldwell. Um, you know, we have just about a minute left, and I want to ask about how you'll handle your own aging process and like the day when you may not be able to climb like you can climb now. I mean, I think that um, focusing more on the mental as such a physical person for so long that, um, you know, writing a book is hugely uh, effort to learn how to become a storyteller. I have so much experience in the climbing realm and I can start to give back with that Hmm. um, to not only tell stories, but, you know, I do a lot of equipment design and, um, you know, I just have huge opportunity within the community to help teach and inspire people in the future with the knowledge that I've built through the last, you know, 30 years of climbing. Life after climbing. Thanks so much for being with us. Tommy Caldwell's new book is called The Push, A Climber's Journey of Endurance, Risk, and Going Beyond Limits. It comes out this month. He lives in Estes Park, where he first learned to climb. You can read an excerpt at cprnews.org. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters.